Well, that was awkward, right? <laughs> but it outlines what we're going to be talking about today, which is this whole idea of relationships. In fact, in God's Word this morning, he shares with us some really amazing words. He gives us some real advice for real-world relationships, the kind that we live with, the kind that we, we struggle with every day, right? Which is, I think is awesome, right? Because anybody can have a relationship work out in a 250-page novel, and anybody can make a relationship work in a 90-minute Hollywood movie. But God talks to us today about the kind of relationships in his word that you and I live with every single day. The ones that have the bumps along the way, the kind that are a little bit imperfect here and there. The real struggles, the real life of relationships. So here's some practical teachings today that God gives to us in his word about how to get through some of those tough days of the relationships. About how to navigate some of those tougher times, those bumps in the road. And he gives us some practical advice of how to navigate those waters forward. Maybe not as the captain does, but, uh, but as God would have us to. And as I talk about each one of these, I want you to understand, first and foremost, that they're all hard to do. They're all hard to implement. In fact, you can't do it on your own power. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives us the strength to do the things that we're going to be talking about today. And he does give us the strength if you'll rely on him. But they're all difficult. But you should kind of understand and, and, and kind of visualize in your own relationships everything we talk about today. And one of the first things that he asks us to do in his word is simply this. I want you to thank him, thank God for your differences. You're saying, what? That doesn't sound right. But it does, right? And it's an interesting thought because as you look at the differences, some of the greatest frustrations in our marriage today are a result of our differences. And yet God says that one of the greatest ways we can begin to think clear, or at least in a clearer way about our relationships, is by recognizing that God just made us to be different. For example, would you agree that, that parents and teenagers sometimes think differently? Anyway, how about this? Would you agree that men and women, husband and wife, sometimes think differently about things? Absolutely. And the reality is that these differences at times can cause the greatest delight in our marriage. It's why we actually fell for the other person to begin with. They brought something to the table we didn't have, and we thought, wow, that's awesome. It's also the cause of incredible agony at times. But God in his wisdom, and you need to hear this, he made us to be different. The incredible truth behind all of this is that God did this to us on purpose. In Genesis 1.27, at the very beginning of the Bible, it says, So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. And all that is to say is that God purposefully made us to be different from each other. It's not only why we fell for each other, it's what we need in the relationship to make it work. And not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. We think differently, we, we work differently, we shop differently, we watch television differently, right? We're just, we're just different people. And yet in spite of all these differences and all the evidence that we're so different from each other, we still get frustrated by the differences. Even though we knew they were there at the beginning, we still get so frustrated. But we need to understand again that God made us different on purpose. In fact, he made men and women to be different in marriage, not to frustrate us, but to complete us, he says, so that my wife can give me an idea that I would have never had otherwise, that she could help me grow in areas and in ways that I would have never grown otherwise. And do you realize that sometimes it just takes both of you to figure out your relationship, that sometimes it takes both of you to come up with the whole truth because you each are bringing something to the table? 
pick one of the greatest moral choices that you'll ever make in your life is to thank God for the differences in your relationships. Because it's one of the things that actually makes the relationships work. In Romans 15, 7, Paul writes this. He says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so when I accept you as different, when you accept me as different, and we enjoy those differences, the Bible says that actually brings praise to God. You know, one of the things about my wife that is just true is she has a sensitive heart. Is that right? She can feel your pain in a very real way. If you're crying, she's going to cry. And she just does that, and it's amazing. And I don't do that as well, right? I mean, I do it sometimes after you leave, but I don't do it, you know, right at the moment. And I've always just appreciated that so much about her, that she can just that she is there in the moment with those emotions and that she brings that to our girls, who we have three of, you know, and she shows them and models that that's okay. And, and I've always loved, and she has an intuition about people that I don't, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just, she brings a whole element that I've always just appreciated in that. Now, sometimes it's a frustrating, well, we're married, right? But, but the reality, when she's crying because of me, you know, that's not as fun. But the reality is, she brings this whole element that, that's phenomenal, the reality is because he made us to be different, and when we enjoy those differences, he gets excited, right? Because he brings him praise, and we get the peace and the harmony that we so desire in our relationships. We've got to stop thinking those as the hugest negatives and understand it's part of why we fell for him. It's part of why it makes our relationship what it is. He goes on and says this too. He says, you go to God, you go to him with your disappointments, Ephesians 4, 2, it says, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Because sometimes that's what love does, doesn't it? Sometimes that's what love needs to do. It needs to make allowances for somebody else's faults. Now, I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say make excuses for somebody else's faults. It does not say make allowances for somebody else's faults in the sense of you go ahead and keep on sinning in this area. It does not say that. It doesn't say it's okay for you to stay in the problem. It means it's okay if you take some time to get there, right? The reality is that we're all sinful people, and we love to kind of look at other people's sins and not ours, right? We love to get self-righteous about other people's sins and say, oh, that's so bad, and, you know, just don't look at me, you know? And we love to point the finger. It's getting the tension off ourselves, but we're all sinners. Every one of us in here is messed up in different ways. It's what makes us unique and different, Right? And our spouses and the people that we have relationships, our kids, our friends, our family, they all love us the way we are, and they make allowances for some of our imperfections. Not that it's okay that what we're doing, that we're doing, but they give us the time to become the person God wants us to be. If you understand that we're all imperfect, that we're all sinners, and God loves us and he's forgiven us for all these things, and yet he loves us too much to keep us there, right? He wants us to get here. You know, um, Salvation isn't about earning it. It's about, it's a, it's about, it is about effort, though. It isn't about earning it. It's about learning it, learning the person that God wants you to be. And so we get those peace and harmony. We get, we get this idea of making allowances for other people. And this is important because sometimes we get disappointed by our own image concerning how things should be. Ever met somebody like that? Probably just raise your hand right now, right? Oftentimes, when it comes to relationships, we get the perfect image of how a relationship should work. We think we're going to have the perfect wedding, the perfect honeymoon, come back to the perfect house, the perfect yard, and the perfect kitchen, raise the perfect kids, and then we're going to go off and have their perfect lives. How many of you have gotten frustrated because one of those things didn't happen? Absolutely. 
We want all these perfect things when the reality is that there's no such thing because life isn't perfect. We're not on a TV show, right? Even those, uh, those uh, I, I am losing words today, but even those reality TV shows, right? They're not real. They have directors. They have people telling you what to say. It's not as real as we'd like to think. Yeah, we grow up sometimes with this idealized idea of romance, this image of the perfect romance. And we're inundated by images of what a perfect relationship should work like or is supposed to be like. And then we look at ours and we see the difference and we think something must be horribly wrong. And that may be good entertainment, but it's just not real. That's not how life works. Sometimes we grow up with those images and we get so disappointed because of the difference. It's something that was never going to happen, never happens, right? And so we get disappointed. And so the question is, what do you do with those disappointments? It didn't turn out like I expected it to. Not at all like I expected it to. Not my marriage, some of you are thinking. Not my kids, not my friendships. And so what do you do with them? The Bible tells us that you, you go to God with your disappointments. Because the beginning point is recognizing that he could meet needs for you that nobody else could meet. In fact, one of the reasons why we get vastly disappointed in our relationships is because we're expecting somebody else to meet needs that only God can meet in our lives. And so, of course, we get disappointed, right? They're not perfect, we find out, but God is. And when you begin to allow God to meet the needs that only he can meet in your life, you begin to reduce so many of the disappointments that you have in your life as well and in the other relationships in your life because you're not looking to them still to meet needs that they just can't. And that's good because when you face these disappointments of life, a choice hits you, and you'll recognize this choice. You can either bail or you can stick it out. We're going through, how many of you guys are going through that conflict series right now in small groups? <laughs> that was an uncomfortable first video too, right? But whenever you have a conflict, one of the biggest struggles in our society right now is this idea of bailing instead of working it out. We'd rather bail than actually spend the time and energy it takes to save a relationship that's important to us. And so when you're reaching these disappointments in life, you have that decision, that choice. I don't want to bail, do I want to stick it out? For example, a few years ago, I saw a story of a couple who was facing Alzheimer's. The thing that gripped me most about this story, more than anything else, was the love that this husband had for his wife, even during a time of incredible disappointment. I mean, can you just imagine the disappointment of expecting to grow old together, right? And the person that you're growing old together with doesn't even know who you are anymore. See, it's the opposite of all of those false images that we see about love on TV. But the cool thing is he remained true. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love never gives up, love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Why? Because that's real life. You face real disappointments. And so where are you going to find the strength to not give up? Where are you going to find the power and the energy that you need in every circumstance? You find it when you go to God with your disappointments. I mean, that's the only place that you find it. When you let him meet needs that only he can meet in your life. When you give him the strength, when you let him give you the strength and the power to love in ways that you have never loved before. I know, life did not, for some of you, turn out the way you expected it to. And what you're facing right now is not what you expected that you'd be facing. So God says, go to him with the disappointments and watch him give you that strength, the strength that only he can give, a strength that you don't have in yourself right now to not give up. And watch him do something in that relationship that you would never have dreamed of. 
Watch him heal something that you would never have imagined. Let him heal you even in the midst of those disappointments. Because God is able. It's when we give up that we make those failures permanent. It's when we give up that we make those disappointments permanent. God says always, over and over, don't give up. And then he says, trust God or trust him with your feelings. Recognize that when we don't feel anything, right, we have a God that can be trusted to restore those feelings. In Psalm 62, verse 8, it says, trust God at all times. Tell him all your problems because God is our protection. And so I can trust God because it says in Hebrews 10, 23, we can trust God to do what he has promised. And so the word love, is it, an, is it, a, is it a feeling or is it an action? Any ideas? Feeling, action. How many think it's a feeling? How many think it's an action? About the same. You guys are not voting very well today. I'm going to tell you the answer. It's an action. It's a verb, right? It love shows. It reveals the way that we act. And I say it's a choice because there are times in a relationship when the feeling is gone in the moment and all you have left is the action. Think about the last heated argument you were in and you needed to do something loving. Sometimes the feelings, the emotions aren't there in the moment and all you have left is the action. What do you do then? Well, the only way then for the feeling to be restored is you need to act in love. And if you continue to act in love, God's promises, I'll restore the feelings as well. Some of you may be thinking, isn't that hypocritical to, to fake it till you feel it, right? Isn't that hypocritical? No, that's just being a human being. See, the truth is, is that the feelings in our life, they go up and down. Have you ever felt in love with your spouse every minute of your marriage? Shoot of hands, how many? Every minute of your marriage you felt in love. It's not true. It's not true. You may be in love, but you have not felt in love every minute of the marriage. It just doesn't work that way. That's only true of me and my wife if she asks, right? Okay. Um, because the reality is that feelings go up and down. They just do. And the intensity of an argument, when somebody brings you flowers, I mean, they just go up and they go down. There are times where we act in love counting on the fact that God will keep his promise and restore those feelings once again. Have you ever been so mad at your spouse or your kids or, or, or somebody in your life and you still did what was right, you still did the loving thing? Knowing that if you kept acting that way, eventually the feelings would return. Like there's a lot of ways and reasons why feelings die in relationships today. But one of the biggest reasons we, we start to, 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 to kind of lose these feelings is that we start to, to live a lie. There comes to a point in a relationship as a husband and wife or with your kids or with their friendship where you see a problem, it's right there in front of us, but instead of talking about it, we just kind of bury it. We start pretending that it's just not there. Everyone knows that it's there, but everyone's pretending that it's not. And the longer you pretend that a problem isn't there, the longer you're silent about that problem in your relationship, the more you're going to struggle with the loss of feelings in that relationship. It's almost like some of you took a vow of silence, you know, early on in that relationship. A long time ago, you decided we're just not going to talk about that anymore. We're not going to talk about that. And the longer you don't talk about that, the more the feelings are going to drain out of your life. But God says this, you don't have to suffer in silence. One of the reasons feelings die is ignoring a problem and pretending that it's not there. We go through the whole conflict series in small group because so many of us don't have the conflict. We just, we live with the resentment, we live with the bitterness, we live with the unspoken. In fact, you'd be absolutely shocked about how many people get divorced today because nobody in the relationship has the courage to say, we have a problem here. 
You'd be shocked at how many people get divorced today to avoid an argument, as silly as that sounds. So are you going to be the one who stands up and says, I'm going to break this vow of silence? We do have a problem. Let's start to work on it, right? Let's get some help. And you said, you've got to be kidding, Pastor. If we do that, we'll have the argument. Duh, right? You absolutely have the argument. But haven't you suffered long enough in silence? Haven't you suffered long enough not dealing with the issue? And having that drain on your feelings and having that drain on your relationship. And when you stop the silence, the coolest thing happens. You, you begin to deal with the problem and the feelings God promises can return. And we need to remember that God is there with us in the process, in the conflict, in the argument. And he specializes at raising things from the dead, at healing things that we think are beyond repair. He specializes in giving us second chances. And then he goes on and he gives us his last one. He says this, look to Jesus as your example. I heard a story this week, a couple of little boys, Kevin 5 and Ryan 3, sitting down for breakfast. The mom is bringing pancakes, and, and she brings the first pancake, and they both grab for it. The mom decides this will be a great moment to teach them a moral lesson. So she says, if Jesus were here, he would give his brother the first pancake, and then he'd sit and wait patiently. So Kevin looked at his little brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> It's one of the great questions in life, though, isn't it? Who's going to be Jesus in this situation? Who's going to be the one to make the unselfish decision, the unselfish choice? And I say that because sometimes I found that I need to be the one to make the unselfish choice. But I've also found, in some cases, that somebody makes that unselfish choice for me in this, during those times that it changes my life. But where in the world do you find the power to do that? I think that's still the question. It's not in yourself for sure. It's not even in the example of Jesus. The only place that you can find that kind of power is in your relationship with God. The relationship that you have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's only there that you find the satisfaction and the joy that enables you to be unselfish in a relationship with other people because we are by nature selfish beings. It's there that you find the strength to be Jesus to them. And this is kind of how he does it. When you begin to ponder and to think over how much you've been forgiven in your life, it's truly extraordinary, actually, how many things God has forgiven you for. How he doesn't hold things against you, how he's completely forgotten them. God doesn't forget anything except what he chooses to forgive us for. And when we ponder over and think about what we've been forgiven for, you'd be amazed at how much that gives you strength to find forgiveness for other people in your life. And when you ponder over and see and think about how patient God has been with you to grow and how long-suffering he has been for us to grow in some areas, how he waits for us to grow. And all of a sudden, I find that I begin to have a strength to be patient with others in my life as they grow. And when I ponder over and I think about how much Jesus is honest about our faults in a tender way, well, you find the strength and the skill to be honest with somebody else in a gentle way. See, the final verse sums up everything we've just talked about today. In 1 John 3.18, it says this, Let us stop just saying we love people. Let us really love them and show it by our actions. Let us show them Jesus. And that's God's call to us today. You know, God knows we're not perfect. 
The, the amazing thing about Jesus is he says, I forgive you. If you believe in my son Jesus, I forgive you. Your slate is wiped clean. Grace is grace. It, it means that we can't do any works to earn it. But he also calls us to follow him, not to earn the grace, but to show our love back to him. Not to earn the grace, but, but to become like him. Not to earn the, the grace, but to bring other people into a knowledge of that grace by seeing our love. God calls us to follow, and that's the hardest part about being a disciple. We, we, we love being saved, right? We love the inner tube they throw out to us in the sea, and we, we, we dig that. But, but this following has always been a hard thing. It's never been about earning. It's been about learning. Learning to be the person God has called us to be. Learning to follow. Learning to be like Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Lights to rise. Let us pray.